0: Good morning. We got a lot to cover today. <clears throat> so, uh, you can turn into your notes to the second part of the first session. Some of my talks this morning are going to follow the notes more closely than others. This syllabus was mainly compiled with the idea in mind that I wouldn't necessarily be able to cover everything I hope to cover, just running out of time. So, hopefully, you can review the syllabus and fill in the the gaps. Also as a refresher. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is uh, the Industrial Revolution. It's really fascinating when you think about it that humans, even from the most conservative Christian point of view, have been on the earth for about 7,000 years. And it wasn't until the 1700s that the Industrial Revolution took place. Now by the Industrial Revolution I mean there was a dramatic change in society and culture when we started creating machines to mass produce consumer goods. Before the revolution, Industrial Revolution there was farmers and tradespeople and you would build one of something and it would be unique and it would be a work of art if it was a trade. But Suddenly, starting around mid-1700s in Britain, we have the explosion of the factory system, which starts mass-producing things, and there's dramatic social changes. But what led to the Industrial Revolution? And why did it take over 6,500 years before it finally developed? Because other cultures had equally brilliant men. Why didn't... China developed the Industrial Revolution? Why didn't Egypt develop the Industrial Revolution? Each of these cultures produced jaw-dropping feats like the Great Wall of China or the pyramids. I mean, these are really impressive technological events, but none of them produced the Industrial Revolution of the mass production of goods. And why is that? Uh, Some of the reasons have to do with politics. Up until the Reformation, the majority of government types were a dictator at the top who saw everybody as under him. And you didn't have private property. You didn't, you didn't receive the benefits of your labor. Uh, so there, was no, there wasn't the same incentive to produce something. Because if you excelled in some area, well, you would probably just be put in the service of the king and you'd be made a slave. So it didn't really matter whether you were an exceptionally gifted person or not, You're, you weren't going to receive the benefits of your labor. This started to change around the Reformation with uh, the Priesthood of All Believers, which removed this kind of this strong centralized government, opened up a free market economy, But it also led, the Protestant Reformation also led to uh, a fear of God that allowed there to be a common law that was over the systems of people rather than just the whims of a dictator. Because up to that point, whoever was king made the laws, and it would change from king to king. I mean, this started happening around the Magna Carta in England where the law was above the king, but these ideas became (coughs) spread more around during the Reformation. So the fact that there could be a law at the top of society over people uh, also led to their respecting things like private property, reducing corruption, um, reducing theft, all of these things that prevent the Industrial Revolution from happening in other cultures. Corruption and stealing and slavery, all of these things prevent there from being a real incentive to create. Another thing that came out of the Reformation was education. So there was, because there was a strong desire for people to be able to read the (coughs) scriptures, that provided a real strong motivation to teach people to read. And once they could read, once there was a more educated people, then there's more of these other intelligent people that in times past were just stuck doing menial farm work, and not there's nothing wrong with farm work, but just stuck doing slave work. Now we're getting educated, learning about scientific principles, and this this led to a, a scientific understanding of the world that was based on the fact that they saw God as creator, so science was worth pursuing. If your idea of this world is that it's inhabited by spirits, like animism, or that there is Everything from thunder to disease is all controlled by competing spirits and polytheism. There's no reason to study science because everything is just the result of capricious forces. And one day the God's going to be angry and there's going to be thunder. And one day God's going to be happy and there's going to be sunshine. No incentive to study this. But when you, people adopted, through the Reformation, reading the Bible the first time, Seeing that God was a creator who did not change, gave consistency to the world that he created. And this world was now a place that could be discovered and analyzed. Um, This idea that science and religion are at odds is a fiction that was developed in the 1800s. Because the first scientists, and any place in the world where science has made great strides, only developed in areas where you had a biblical, view of God, where he was the creator and there was a rationality and an order to his creation that could be discovered. So the scientific revolution led to new understandings and new inventions. Before you have machines that can create goods, you need a power source. Now up until the 1700s, the main power sources, does anybody have any guesses? Windmills. Windmills? And rivers. Windmills and rivers, those were the only harnessable powers. Well in the seven, mid-1700s James Watt developed, invented the steam engine. The steam engine could be powered by coal, but what was great about the steam engine is you could move your power source and set up a power source in areas that weren't just by rivers. Now it also had the advantage that the steam engine could run all year long, whereas the water falls and rivers were very seasonal. I mean, sometimes they would dry up, sometimes floods would come and completely destroy the mill that was set up there. Other times it would freeze. So the steam engine <laughs> creating power opened up whole new worlds to people. And one of the first uses of the steam engine was empowering, was transforming the cotton industry. Uh, for most of English history, their main industry had been wool. But then it became cotton as Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, which removed the little seeds from cotton, and did the work in one day of what one person would have taken them two months to do. So cotton became readily accessible, and then there was new machines that found new ways to weave it into yarn, and then spin it, and then uh, create new fa- fabrics. So that was one of the first big changes to the Industrial Revolution, and that, of course, led to other changes in technology, this factory idea was spread to other, other things. Uh, the adoption of coal over wood products, forests didn't provide as much heat. So once they started using coal, it led to new changes in types of metal they were able to do, produce. And once you had better quality metals, then you had better quality inventions and so forth. Another changes that happened in the Industrial Revolution is once you've created products that are in greater in number than your community can consume. You need a way to transport them. Now transportation of goods raises the value of goods. Transportation up until the 1700s, outside uh, if you were out in the ocean, you had a big ship and you, you could sail it, but transportation on land was a very costly difficult affair because you had to compete with snow, you had to compete with mud, you had your wagons would sink down so you couldn't load them very much. One of the first strides forward was in the canal. England developed a series of canals. Canals were greatly improved. They would waterways that would be dug and you could float large vessels that could carry a lot more weight than a wagon could. And at first, canals were, uh, ships were pulled by horses or oxes alongside the canals. And then the steam engine was applied to them and then steam ships would take it to the canals. Then there was advances in the roads. Uh, Usually there was a series of toll roads where it would provide some incentive for someone to create a road because you would get your investment back. But the biggest change, of course, was the railroad. The railroad was not subject to winter freezing like canals were. The railroad could go year round for the first time in history. You could transport things on land year round. So the Industrial Revolution led to you being able to create year round and transport things year round. Plus, it was coupled with in England with the time of peace. A lot of these same factors as far as the politics and religion were taking place in Europe, but Europe from the Reformation until pretty much up until 1950 was almost continually under the threat of war. And war is... Bankers make money on war, but only in another country. The bankers in the country where the war take place don't do as well. And war destroys the crops, it destroys the labor force, it breaks any type of invention, it just, where there's war in the the industrial economy will not develop. And we definitely see that today in parts of Africa where the tribal warfare is just preventing these nations from ever getting off their on their feet. Keister, Keister, their Keister. Thank you, Craig. <laughs> so, and that just combined with a, a fear of God system that respected human rights, respected human property, all of these things led to the Industrial Revolution, and there's a, uh, still debated. The first revolution was in England, what we covered now. The second Industrial Revolution happened in the United States after the Civil War when they started applying the new technologies of electricity and uh, oil and new discoveries there that led to another great leap forward. So that was the Industrial Revolution. Now let's look at imperialism. You can turn to the start of this second session. Once you have an industrial world, um, by the way, the Industrial Revolution dramatically changed society, it changed free time, it changed family life, and I'm gonna look at that at the start of session four. But once you have a factory producing goods, you need raw materials to put into that factory, and you also need a market to sell it to. Countries, especially back then, had a high-tariff system that protected their national interests. A tariff is a tax on goods coming into the country. Uh, The idea was that if another nation is producing something cheaper, well, you won't let anybody bring that product into your country without putting a heavy tax on it so that it's actually cheaper to buy local. That was the idea of the tariffs. And England and France and the US Canada, they all had really high tariffs protecting their interests. So to get raw goods and a a market for it, they would just go conquer something. Uh, the, The colonies with Britain were originally a place where they could have, get raw material, in this case cotton and lumber, without paying high tariffs that they would have to if they went to, say, property that France owned or Russia owned. So if they owned this property, the colonies, then they could get raw material. Then they also had a market where they could sell the goods that were being produced in England. So that was one of the first reasons for imperialism, is for markets and a source of raw goods. Uh, Another source of reason for imperialism was there was intense spirit of nationalism and rivalry between Prussia and Russia and especially England and France. Just, we're in a constant race with each other to try to outdo the other. And imperialism, the more places you could have land, the better it was. Uh, where this got really crazy, the whole imperialism thing, is in the last half of the 1800s, when all but two countries of Africa came under the control of European nations. Ethiopia and Liberia were the only countries in Africa before World War I that weren't under European colonial rule. Other places that uh, imperialism or colonialism spread was India, Vasco da Gama made it under the tip of uh, South Africa, and immediately there, there was a, a sea route to India and Asia, and there was a competition between Portugal and England to set up ports there. And England eventually won a monopoly in India under the East Bay Company. Uh, they, the East Bay Company was actually very against missionaries <laughs> coming because they were afraid that missionaries would upset their social structure that they were exploiting. <coughs> but many people saw imperialism not just as a negative thing, which is pretty much how in, if you're taught it in a public school system or it's portrayed in a film, imperialism right, is, is strictly seen as a negative thing where you have a, a greedy European empire imposing its will and exploiting an innocent simple native culture. That's the popular story of imperialism. But there's a couple flaws in that. One, these Cultures that were not Christian, before imperialism came into them, were not as peaceful or wonderful as they're portrayed to be. Things like disease and starvation and broken down family and addictions, these are things that keep, and living in fear of of foreign powers and gods you don't understand, it's not a, a romantic, peaceful existence. It's much more like the British writers, said, nasty, brutish, and short, the life. So when the good motivated imperialists came into a country, they would set up things like hospitals, they would bring modern medicine in, they would bring education in, they would bring literacy in, they would bring roads in, technology. All things, all powers for good, they can all be exploited for evil but they all have tremendous power for good and power to greatly raise the cost and the quality of life. So that was the third reason for imperialism, humanitarianism. It didn't always, it didn't always get implied. Uh, but the fourth one was missionary work. Now, there was... Sadly, after the apostolic age there was not a lot of missionary impulse. In the Catholic Church, there was the (coughs) Jesuits who made it to China and Japan in the 1600s. They made it to Japan and set up a Christian community there that ended up getting wiped out and in China. But after the Reformation, For the first 200 years after the Reformation, there still wasn't much of a missionary impulse. And there's a couple reasons for this. One was they thought the most important work of evangelism was not to reach the individual. It was to set up a Christian state. It was still this idea that religion is controlled by you changing the leaders and the leaders imposing the will on their people. That's how evangelism was done for most of church history. You would try to convert the ruler, and then the ruler would force baptism. For a lot of church history, there was darkness that they thought becoming a Christian was as simple as baptism, that baptism was what made you a Christian. So because of that, you could force conversion on people. But another reason was that people thought that the Great Commission only applied to the apostles, just like... They thought speaking in tongues only applied to the apostles and the miraculous only applied to the apostles. So they thought Jesus' command to go into all the nations and make disciples was something that only applied to the apostles. We're going to look at some of the things that began to change this, some of the, the missionaries. The first great awakening that happened under George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in North America and the Wesley brothers in England in the 1700s. And I'm sure the whole Protestant work ethic that happened in that, in that awakening on both sides also led to an improvement in the Industrial Revolution. Because for the first, one of the first times in history work wasn't seen as a curse, something that came out of, before the Reformation work was pretty much seen as a curse, something you, got slaves to do, and if you became truly spiritual, you would join a monastery. You would devote yourself to spiritual things. So anybody who was spiritual was pursuing spiritual things, and if you had a really godly motivation, there was no point in art or secular work. But Martin Luther changed that, saying that everything can be done for God's glory. And so this new understanding that you could actually do your, I say nine to five job, that would be very anachronistic because nine to five jobs are much, much later. But that your job during the week could be done for God's glory was a revolutionary idea. So now when there was a great awakening or a revival, then it, it propped up every area of the economy, not just the church. People had, could apply their religious motivation to their, to their daily work, and that inspired them to become better scientists, better tradesmen, more innovative. <clears throat> but anyway, this first great awakening also led to some of the first missionary impulse. Now, up until the 1700s, or the missionaries had another problem. Well, how do you get to these other nations? Because if you have a missionary desire in the 1200s, or the 1300s, or the 1400s, one of your first problems is how do you get there? You have to cross so many hostile countries that you're not even gonna make it to your mission field. Technologies in sailing better ships led to an, uh, an increased globalization, especially in the 1500s, and it's amazing how This, God uses even things like the greed that was motivating people to take their, and conquer other lands. God used that because it opened up doors to bring missionaries. And all the missionaries we're going to look at today were able to take root in their countries because of imperialism. That they received protection, and they received a means of transportation. So that's the background. You can look at your notes. We're going to look at William Carey. William Carey was a Baptist from England. He tried work as a farmer, but his skin was so sensitive that he couldn't spend much time outside. So he became a shoemaker. There's another name for that. Cobbler. Cobbler. Became a... That makes me hungry, he was a shoemaker. (laughs) And while he was working on these shoes, he just, he had a love for geography. He'd, He'd study maps. How William Carey would unwind was studying plants. William Carey just had a passion for God's creation. But he also developed, God put an increasing burden on his heart for the people of India that he wanted to bring the gospel there and, most importantly, to bring God's word, to translate the Bible into the language of the Indians and the Hindus. When he was 20, he married a 25-year-old woman named Dorothy. They had, I think they lost three babies. This is something that we don't deal with near as much, but infant mortality for most of history was a real fact of life. Even Montreal, for example, in the mid-1800s was only, was losing, only one in three infants was surviving to to become a toddler. So that was just a fact of of life, just poor sanitation and malnutrition, all these things were just decimating Infants when I mean, you don't understand things like germs or bacteria. So anyways, Dorothy had a hard life. William Carey decided he wanted to go to India and he set out to sail and his Dorothy just did not want to join him. She said, look, this is illegal. The East India Company at this time had made missionary work illegal. But he said, we, we need to go. On the day the ship left, William Carey and his friend pleaded with Dorothy. She was several months pregnant. They said, if you don't come with us, you may never see your husband again. So she reluctantly came. She arrived in India in a world of snakes and tigers and malaria and heat and completely primitive housekeeping. Dorothy's sister came along But Dorothy, his sister, ended up marrying another British lieutenant in the area. So Dorothy was left alone. When her five-year-old son Peter died, she snapped mentally. She started hallucinating. She started accusing William Carey of infidelity. She became very suspicious of him, following him around. She would come to his place of work and scream obscenities at him accusing him of being unfaithful she even took a kitchen knife and tried to kill him he had, she had to be for his own safety locked in a room for 12 years so William Carey would be counseling people and his wife you could hear his wife screaming and wailing in the background that was the anvil that William was Carey was shaped on dealing with the broken wife. Once she died, he remarried uh, a wealthy woman named Charlotte. Charlotte had been severely burned in a fire as a child and had, couldn't smile or move one side of her face. She had trouble talking, she couldn't walk. But William Carey loved Dorothy. Dorothy was so, I mean Charlotte, he loved Dorothy too. but. <laughs> Charlotte was so good for William. She took an interest in what he did. She listened. She had a very kind, sweet spirit about her. But she later passed away. And while William Carey was grieving this, he, the loss of his wife, he had to deal with a rebellious son that was defaming his name in public. He had to deal with A mission board that had received false complaints from him and was told that William Carey was being too domineering and that he should give all control of his work and properties over to the trustees. It's almost just a common saying in history work that some of the greatest trials missionaries face are from other missionaries, not from the the people they're trying to reach, which is very sad and Satan knows that that's got to be one of the most pressing, challenging burdens. Before William Carey's second wife died, he had a devastating fire that completely destroyed his printing press. He had been working on translating the Bible into, I think, 10 different languages. He'd been working on translating a, a Hindu epic and All of his valuable types, his paper, his presses were all destroyed in the fire. God worked a miracle there. He so stirred people's hearts that within, I think, a year, almost everything had been replaced through the generosity of people. But later in life, William Carey had a flood come through after this controversy with his mission board. The flood came through and destroyed his properties and this time, the people back home had bought, had believed all the lies about him that hardly any money came and he went, he became bankrupt. And he, he continued his work, he created a, a university for people that is still being attended today. But on, th- on the surface it seems like William Carey didn't uh, succeed, uh, achieve a lot of success, but I, I read a book by... Vishal Mangalwadi, who grew up in India, uh, I encourage you to write that name down, look him up. He's written some tremendous books. Growing up in India, he's seen the devastation that happens when a nation doesn't have a Christian worldview, and the oppression and the poverty and the corruption that all brings. But Vishal Mangalwadi also saw the tremendous impact that William Carey had on India. And that eventually led to India achieving its own independence after Mahatma Gandhi led a nonviolence protest, and India achieved some level of economics, uh, in, uh, independence, and it was due in large part to the ideas that William Carey brought to India. When he came to India, the moral condition he faced was one of infanticide, where if uh, Baby was sick, they thought an evil spirit was attacking this baby and the baby was cursed. So they'd expose it to the elements for three days, and if it survived, then they would seek medical attention. There was such a devastating cycle of poverty, especially in the caste system, which if you were belonged to the lowest caste, there was nothing you could do to rise out of this. They believed in reincarnation, so that if you were born into this lowest caste system, You were there because of being punished for what you'd done in your future life, so you were actually upsetting the moral order in the universe to try to help someone in the caste system, and those lowest castes, rise up out of that. So that was another reason for infanticide. Um, Another problem that India had was widow burning. It was such a, a widow faced so much poverty after that it was often easier for economically to be burned along, on her husband's, burned alive on her husband's grave. And this happened commonly. It was called sati, or satay. One of those. But William Carey, working with the British government that had started setting up control posts, did a lot to eliminate infanticide, the killing of babies and widow burning. But something that he didn't try to use legislation to change was the, uh, what was happening with uh, child marriage. In Calcutta, Wait. in the late 1800s, just in, in one year of census, there were 10,000 widows under the age of four, and 50,000 widows between the ages of five to eight. And a widow in this age was basically ruined goods and just didn't have any value anymore in this culture. So children being born into this and it was polygamy. Wealthy people would collect many wives. It was a a very oppressive society for women, coupled with the fact that when a man married a woman, the parents had to pay the man a very expensive dowry so because of this in a poor culture fathers groaned when they had a daughter because they knew this daughter would bankrupt them and they often didn't put the same attention into keeping girls alive William Carey brought the love of Christ for women and the way he tried to deal with this was through educating women showing them that women had value Very revolutionary idea, but he raised women up out of the muck and said, you're valuable, you are precious. He brought the love of Christ, which transformed the world for many Indian women. Sadly, many parts of India today have just fallen right back into a lot of these old habits, especially with the idea that every culture's religion is sacred and they're all equally valuable and whatever you had before, it should be valuable to you just because that was what your great-grandfather or even farther than that believed. But there are some religions and religious views that are actually oppressive. They're not all equal. Not to mention false. They're actually oppressive. William Carey brought a great optimism to India. There were people that said the Hindu is so morally corrupt it's not even worth trying to reason with him. They are st- Chronic liars, you can't trust them. Let's just exploit what we can from their goods and let's just leave them to their own mess that they made. They made their bed, let them lie in it. But William Carey was determined to bring the love of Christ to India, to change the society, even at great sacrifice to himself. He developed, I think he translated the whole Bible into at least six different languages that anytime you translate the Bible into a country, you have brought a seed that has tremendous explosive power to transform the society. Because as people start to read God's word and they start understanding, seeing this world different, they start seeing people different, start seeing science and education and work, they see it all through the lens of the Bible which is so different than how cultures that don't have the Bible see it. Cultures that don't have the Bible see human life as worthless. Something to be exploited. Today we have an echo of a Christian worldview, so even in atheist country, we have protests for human rights. But the only time reason a human really has a right is if there is a God who created us in His image. If we're just the result of a random explosion, human life has no value. And that is a, you look at atheist countries in Russia and China and Germany, human life is really cheap. But William Carey brought in the Bible, which helped people see that human life is precious. Human life is worth saving. Um, Even we'll see later when Darwin brought his ideas of the survival of the fittest and the Humans were evolving. Even Christians thought the way to bring utopia on earth was through genetically changing people by letting people who had disabilities or deformities sterilizing them and only letting the perfect people breed which is exactly the logic that Hitler used and why he ended up killing the Jews, because he thought the Jews were an inferior race and that the way to bring a utopia on earth was to eliminate all the, all the broken people in society. Which is completely backwards to the kingdom of God, which values the poor, the weak, the lame, the broken, the oppressed, the slave. All the people that normally just get viewed as worthless. The Christian worldview, when a man is transformed by God's word and by the love of Christ, he starts valuing the weak and willing to sacrifice himself. That alone is a tremendous benefit when genuine Christianity comes to a country. Other benefits that William Carey brought to India were a love of science, and he tried to teach astronomy to show them that the stars were under God's hand, whereas they had been obsessed with astrology, which felt like they were the slaves of the stars. This idea of reincarnation had brought an idea of karma in that whatever you had done in a previous life made ensure that you were stuck with a certain life, that you had a destiny and a karma, that the script for your life could not be changed. Whatever you were born into, it was predetermined by the stars, predetermined by things you had done in a previous life. And it just created a profound apathy. There's no motivation to try to work, to try to change, because you're fighting against your fate. And even, even today, Hollywood movies are becoming infatuated with this idea of fate. It sounds like God's sovereignty, but it's very different than the idea of God's sovereignty. The idea of God's sovereignty is not that we just follow a predetermined script and we can't change anything. The idea is that God gave humans a valuable choice, significant choice. God lets us co-write the script of our life. God is over and above. He always has the final say. He knows what we're going to do. Nothing catches him off guard. But it does not change the fact that our actions have significance. And we're going to see this throughout history, that it is... Terrifying, just how much significance God lets our actions have. God will let a Hitler arise and destroy 70 million people indirectly. God will let a Joseph Stalin rise. God will let a man turn into a pedophile. God will let a man turn into a rapist. This, are, this is not... When you look at the evil in this world and you look at the fact that God grieves... Is proof that God does not see this world as just a karma or a fate. God values our actions and our choices, and the whole Bible is Him calling us to action. People in the 1800s grasped this and they threw great energy into this. They believed that no matter how bleak it was, God's power could change the world. In fact, one of the most common ideas during the first and second great awakening was that Christ was not going to return until the fullness of the Gentiles that Paul talked about in Romans 12. The fullness of the Gentiles would be, there would be a huge revival of the Gentiles and then the Jews would repent and they would also turn to their Messiah and that would result in the millennial age, where this, as God's kingdom advanced, the curse would be rolled back. And so everything they had was great optimism that they could go sacrifice. William Carey could go, I could go sacrifice myself in India, because I know that what I do there is actually going to make a difference. Even if I don't get to see the benefit of what I do, I know I'm part of a greater story of what God is doing. And it was such a motivation to action, because you felt like you were just a co-laborer with Christ. We're going to see how that all changed after the Civil War among fundamentalist Christians. But so that's some of what William Carey brought to India, was the idea that he was working alongside a greater power, and that people's ultimate problem was sin and rebellion against God. And that if he could teach repentance and conversion to God, society would change. Something else we'll see later, that the whole idea that people are bad who need, are rebels who need to be converted, was changed in favor of, let's scientifically engineer our society to eliminate poverty and alcoholism. And the whole idea that the only way you can change a system and a society is by changing the heart of an individual was lost. So that's what William Carey brought to India. Quickly look at Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was born in Massachusetts in 1788. He was part of the product of the first great awakening that gave a real missionary reform impulse to Christianity in North America. His father was a Congregationalist. After the Revolution, Christianity was in really bad shape. <clears throat> there was, Deism was becoming a very popular idea that there was only a watchmaker God who didn't care to intervene, who wouldn't stoop to do things like write the Bible or become a man or save us from our sins. So, deism was kind of the best of both worlds. You could believe in a god, but this god would never interfere with your life, so you could practically be an atheist. This was a very common idea that was spreading, especially through Harvard, which had been a Puritan school. And the, the denomination Unitarianism, which is, was also basically atheist Christianity, denied the supernatural, it was basically a church for deists, <coughs> denied the Trinity. Thomas Jefferson said that that was the church of the future, was the Unitarianism, and that within 30 or 50 years all the other denominations would be extinct. John Marshall said that Christianity is so far gone it cannot be recovered. That was the, I, where Christianity had decayed after, between Jonathan Edwards and after the revolution but like Chesterton said, there's been five times that Christianity has gone to the dogs and each time it was the dog that died. (laughs) God's Spirit burst onto North America in such a powerful way that it just completely rocked society in every aspect of society. That by the Civil War it was a very different picture of Christianity and the Bible had almost universal respect. But I'm getting ahead of myself. adniram Judson was a product, though, of this second great awakening. And he, his dad was a Congregationalist minister, but his dad was concerned that adniram Judson, if he went to one of these main institutions, he would become a deist. It would, it would ruin his faith. So he sent him to a conservative, more conservative, what he thought biblically sound, school, but Adoniram Judson met a man there who taunted him, challenged him to lose his faith, said there's more to life than this stuffy religion, and Adoniram Judson, if he didn't become an atheist, he became the next best thing to an atheist. He became, sold himself into worldly goods, traveled with a group of actors, said he was a wretched infidel. One night he was traveling, and at the mo- this inn where he was staying and he heard in the next room a man moaning and sounded like he was dying. So the next morning he asked the innkeeper, whatever happened to that man? The innkeeper said that man died and he said, well, who was it? And it turned out that the man who died in the next room was the very man who had made Adoniram Judson lose his faith. And that so shook Adoniram that he realized he really needed to rethink this. He came back home, and shortly later, he had an experience where he wrote in his journal that he had just completely surrendered his life back to God. And about the same time, he started reading about the Christians in India, and he, God put on his heart a real definite burning for the people of Burma, which is, you can, you can look at this uh, map on the back, it's right next to Thailand. He married a woman by the name of Anne Hasseltine, and they left just on the eve of the War of 1812 in February. It was a several month journey, Adniram Judson believed in infant baptism, but he was planning to meet, he would stop at India on the way to Burma, and he was going to meet William Carey there. And William Carey was a Baptist, so Adniram Judson was doing his homework so he could defend the position of infant baptism. William Carey. But on the way, he became so convicted by the position of adult baptism that the Baptists hold, or at least conscious baptism where you decide when to become baptized, and he converted, and he and Anne wrestled with it, and Anne converted too. This was a very costly thing though because their mission board back home was Congregationalist, and by changing their views to Baptist, they had said goodbye to their home support. Once they arrived in India, they arrived uh, in, um, in Burma, they arrived in a very beautiful area, but just one that was completely untouched by European influence. Adnan Judson got to work right away learning the language. He set up a hut, the site on the road that was, this was part of a, conf- very conf- Confucius called these were Confucius times. It was a con- <laughs> Confucius. And he would sit in this hut and just say, Ho, anyone who thirsts. And he would invite people to just come and listen to the gospel all the way he was working on his translation work and just learning the language first before he could translate. He went to the king of Burma trying to find some religious freedom to help make the gospel easier to spread. But right at this time, war with England broke out and Adoniram Judson was viewed as a spy. So he was put, pretty much sentenced to death, and Anne kept him alive by bribing the guards. But the persecution and the hardships that Adnaram Judson went through, he said later when he recalled that, it was just seemed like a horrible nightmare. He didn't want to revisit. He was finally the war won it opened up a port England acquired some more influence on the land Judson was released and used as a interpreter in some of the negotiations but this time led to the breaking of his wife's health and she gave birth to a little girl died shortly after and a few months later her little girl died so Judson was in deep depression, grieving his wife that he loved so deeply. This Ann Judson was such a hero to women back home. On the trip she said there's one vision that compels me, it's the idea of having a Bible study with Burmese women and praying, getting to pray with them. She said that's the one vision, this picture that was going to be her, her driving passion. But she died and <laughs> Judson went into a retreat in the woods and he just felt so depressed. His church that he, he had started had had crumbled. He'd lost his wife, he'd lost his children. He was so alone, he actually dug a grave and would just sit there imagining himself in there. He said, let's see if I, I mean, he, said, he just, he said he believed in God, but he felt that like God had abandoned him; that God was completely absent. But he persisted in in translating the Bible. God sent some help. George and Sarah, the Boardman, I think, and uh, they started working with the jungle people. George Boardman passed away, and uh, a few years later. Adoniram married his wife Sarah, and they were very happy together, they had, they had several children. There was a, a Burmese man by the name of Kotai Bu. He, he had a real temper, he would already killed 30 men. He was ransomed from slavery by another missionary, but this man had such a temper that this missionary just was not getting through to, through to him. So he put him under the control of Adniram Judson. And this young man, he, they said he had a very dark mind, just very slow-witted, probably demonic. But somehow Adniram was able to get through to him and the love of Christ changed him. And he was never a genius, but he developed such an aptitude to learning God's word. And he went and became a, a missionary to his people in the jungle. Just an amazing transformation of how God changed this young man. Sarah became very sick, and the doctor said the only way she has a chance of living is if you take her back home. She died on the return trip. She was return trip. She was buried at Saint Helena, Saint Helen, where Napoleon had been exiled. And Judson returned home grieving the loss of his second wife, but he. Found out that he was a huge celebrity in America. His wife had been sending home reports while he was in jail, and they had just become—they captured people's imagination. There was best-selling biographies about him, and just God was using him to inspire so many people to to leave the mission to leave for the mission field. While he was there, he fell in love with. uh, a woman by the name of Emily Chubbuck, but she was writing under the pen name Fanny Forrester, which I don't know if it was a whole lot better. (laughs) She, She didn't want to know people that she was writing fiction, which was still looked down upon in some segments of society. But he asked, could you write a biography of Anne, his first wife? And she started writing it and they fell in love and they got married and she was a, a good companion to him till Ad Nairam died. Today in Burma, I've only just scratched the surface of these men's life. I hope I've just given you enough interesting detail that you seek out a biography of these people because I can't hope to do their lives justice. But today there are 4 million Christians in the area where Judson, and 2 million of them are Baptists, which is a huge legacy that he left. And in the late 1900s, they said, well, are we ready for a new Bible translation that's more current with the way language changed?" And they said, no, Adoniram Judson's Bible he's translated is still right up to date with the way people speak. He had done his research so well that his translation had survived these 200, almost 200 years. <clears throat> so I was going to look at Hudson Taylor I'm not sure how much time I have we're going to look on, at, on Sunday we're going to look at the way the Christian church has survived communism but Hudson Taylor did so much to open the door to, missionary, to missions in China Hudson Taylor's dad James Taylor told his wife that if I ever receive a son, I would love for him to be a missionary to China. He was just fascinated by the fact that there was still an ancient culture still in existence. He never told Hudson that, but Hudson as a boy of his own desire started expressing a desire for China. But then he went wayward as well. And his mom was at his, her sister's house and she vowed to lock herself into this, in this room praying for Hudson until he became a Christian. And that day he picked up a tract and was convicted and God started working in his life. Hudson came to China. He saw how oftentimes what was working against missionaries was they insisted on importing their culture and they couldn't make a distinction between what was Christianity and what was was Western culture. Already Westerners had had a bad name in China because... The, the businessmen brought opium in to got them addicted, and when people are addicted to a drugs, they make really good deals for you. And that was happening in the opium war that, that led to conflict. Britain, though, because they won the opium, opium war, was able to tra- sign the Treaty of Nanking, which opened up five ports, which more missionaries flooded in, to. But Hudson Taylor, insisted on dressing like the Chinese because the Chinese had a system of dress but the way a Chinese dress dictated what position they had in society and so do we dress like the wealthy so we get respected or do we dress like the really poor and get shunned so they decided to dress like the peasant school teacher and that because they saw themselves as teachers so they (laughs) grew the Q, which was the ponytail which sure, West, uh, representing. <laughs> yeah, which real Western men hated. <laughs> uh, there's there's more I wanted to get, I wanted to get into the story of the Cambridge Seven who were inspired by Hudson Taylor. They were seven young men who were in Cambridge University, they were cricket stars, one of them was CT Stud. It was like this dream team missionary group that was coming, they were Men on fire for God. They got to China and they were waiting for a miracle of Pentecost to give them the Mandarin language, the Chinese language. And when that didn't come, they got their tails in gear and worked very hard to learn the language. <laughs> and uh, they were—they met a fascinating character, Pastor. I'm terrible with Chinese names. We'll call him C. He received visions from God about how to a concoction to make that would help people not become addicted to opium. It was a recipe that helped them um, become unaddicted. And they served under him, even though he had some different ideas. He became fascinated when he read the Gospels by this whole idea of demon exorcism. And his wife was a real cranky, dour lady, so he exorcised her. And she was completely transformed, just a little marriage tip to keep (laughs) under your belt. Hudson Taylor really encouraged single women to come and the amazing stories of what single women survived in their harsh Chinese culture. Hudson Taylor, though, received real criticism from other missionaries. He was domineering, controlling. He was too inappropriately involved with other young women, affectionately, apparently. In fact, two of the young women that stayed with him both had crushes on him. And one, I think her name was Emily, she volunteered to take Hudson's children back to England, hoping that it would win brownie points with Hudson. And while she was gone, Hudson Taylor's wife, Maria, died. And she thought, yes, I have a chance with him. But by the time Hudson came, he had already married the other young woman, Jenny, who had stayed there. And she was completely shattered. She wrote in her journal, I don't know why God has prevented me from enjoying the supreme happiness.